I've learned a great deal about myself and about my relationships with God and other people. I have also witnessed an imbalance in my own life, an inclination to favor raw experience over human interactions, dramatic epiphanies over subtle moments of insight. Up to now, that is, where I have made my spiritual home. But it is a home that can often be cold and isolating. I am easing away from the edge and searching for a center. I am trying to learn the wisdom of the middle way, just as I have learned from the fringes. While I have few regrets about the different experiences I describe in this book, and while I'm clearly not the first person to have found God or my divine self outside of conventional religious contexts, I sense that the time has come for me to explore a new frontier, community. Serving as a rabbi for a community of individuals is very different from the kind of rabbi rabbinate I have had up to now. I am beginning to hear the still small voice of God break through the thunder of Mount Sinai. I am beginning to see the sparks of divinity in the eyes of children and not only through the stars in the night sky. I am becoming humanized. But I know myself, I will always hear the call of the wild the beckoning of fresh experiences and new frontiers. Yet, I will have to come up with ways of incorporating that impulse into a spirituality that is centered in the here and now, in daily life, in relationships with other human beings. To paraphrase Frost, the edge is lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. I find myself in a somewhat similar place. Recently, I drove down to Chicopee, which is about a 45-minute drive from where I live to get my hair cut. And um, I don't, I travel a lot and I don't particularly like the driving part of it. So it's always kind of a big deal, but I go because um, she's a friend and she's a really good hairdresser. And um, so I went down and I hadn't seen her for a while and she took quite a long time cutting my hair and she always cuts my hair with a great deal of care. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I have this, you know, this particular aversion to going into a, a hairdressing salon and someone just snipping my hair in 10 minutes or 15 minutes and then I come out and it's not so much how I look, although I, I notice how I look and often I don't like it, but it's just that feeling of someone not caring about what they're doing. So I love my hairdresser because she cares. So anyway, so she, she took 40 minutes rather than 15 to cut my hair. And, it, and um, I was paying her and I hadn't been for a while, so I said, how much are you? And she said, oh, I'm 24. And in th um, that moment, 
of giving her money, I felt this sort of contraction inside of myself of being poor, of, well, I know Mary has a lot of money, and so I gave her a dollar tip. And then driving home, I felt very remorseful because I hadn't expressed in the way that I wanted to my friendship and my appreciation of her by giving her a few more dollars. And these, this, 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 um, both, both, what, um, what is his name? Niles Elliot and that incident speak of is the, the different energies that we have living inside of ourselves, that we have this um, capacity to love and to be clear, to have insight, to be wise. We have the capacity for an unlimited empathy for all of life, for ourselves and for all of life. We have an ability to love without prejudice and discrimination. This is called our Buddha nature. It is our refuge. It is our home. It is actually the very fountain or root. I, I don't want to say of our practice because sometimes when we talk about practice it feels as though we're making a separation between our lives and then something that we do, you know, that maybe even is, is a sort of set apart from our lives, like coming here. But uh, when we talk about the practice, we're talking about this that is here inside each one of us. And when the Buddha teaches, he's teaching about us, about you and about me, and about this capacity that we have that lives inside of us. And the Buddha says, this is our home. This is our true refuge. And taking the refuges is something that we do at the beginning of coming into um, um, uh, retreat. It's actually something that is present for us in every moment. And when we talk about being mindful and when we come here to practice together, really what we're doing is cultivating a remembering. That's the traditional definition in the Abhidharma of mindfulness, is to remember, not to float away. And what are we remembering? We're remembering this. We're remembering our Buddha nature and that capacity to love and to be in friendship with all of our life. So, um, um, so uh, all the great teachers um, reiterate that in different ways. Thich Nhat Hanh says, if you drill deep enough, you for sure will hit water. If you if you become present and stay present enough, for sure this capacity will be awakened. The Dalai Lama says the same thing. He says, our true nature is this, is our love. 
and our compassion and our empathy. And at the same time, we are born with the capacity to be deluded, to forget. We are born with that forgetting that expresses itself in controlling, in judgment, in defensiveness, in envy, in jealousy, in greed. And what, what that, what delusion, what delusion is, is blindness. It's not remembering the right turn to this refuge or real home. We could say that our delusion is the mistaken attempt to come home to that Buddha nature. It's taking the wrong turn. So in that moment with Mary, my hairdresser, I, I fell, I forgot and fell into the delusion that by giving her less, I was taking care of myself. But really, I wasn't. Because it is love that takes care of ourselves. And that the contraction, the controlling, the defensiveness that, that we've built and that we continue to build, because each one of us has these energies inside of us, are mistaken beliefs that we are actually serving love that we are actually serving our hearts, that we are actually serving wisdom. I met a man <coughs> I met a man who had practiced in India in the late 1960s and early 70s. He was an avid meditator. He shaved his head, he wore white, he spent years in temples and ashrams and monasteries. His parents hated it. He was probably in his early 30s at the time and his parents thought he should be in medical school or law school. His mother was particularly unhappy. It was as if he had died, as if she had lost a son. Whenever he went to see Deepama, she would ask him about his mother. How is your mother? How is she doing? When you do your sittings, are you doing metta for your mother? Every time you sit, you should put your mother in your heart and send her loving kindness. One time she reached under the mattress in her back room and pulled out a roll of Indian banknotes. She took out a hundred rupee note worth about twelve dollars, which was a lot of money for her. She put it in his hand, closed his fingers over it and said, go buy a present and send it to your mother. That was how she taught. And then, do you, do you all know Deepama? She's um, was a, a, a she's uh, one of the few 
arahants or, or teachers that uh, attained full enlightenment that taught some of our, our teachers, uh, Joseph and Sharon and Jack. You can tell she's a, a small, small little Indian woman. This is, this, is a, this is another small story. While Deepama was at IMS in 1984, I spotted a big teddy bear sitting atop the trash to be picked up in the neighborhood. I rescued it and gave it to Deepama's grandson, Rishi, who was also here with his mom. We named the bear Anagarika, Teddy. One meaning for Anagarika is literally homeless one. When Deepa and family left IMS, Teddy remained in my care, and I more or less forgot about him. A couple of years later, I went to India and visited Deepa Ma in Calcutta. When she saw me, she immediately asked, how is Anagarika Teddy? She had not forgotten even a teddy bear saved from the trash. I was taken aback. It made me realize how much she must also care for living, breathing beings like myself. It revealed to me her clarity of mind as well. So I read that because this capacity that we have to make friends and to care for each other is the, is the capacity, the Buddha says, that also actually allows us to go deeper inside of ourselves. That when Ananda came to the Buddha, and I know that many of you have heard this before, and said, is friendship important in the spiritual practice? The Buddha said, it is not just important, it is the most important thing in spiritual practice. This capacity to remember where our true refuge is. And from this true, true refuge, from this capacity to love, to begin to touch others in caring. Where we often find ourselves falling into separation and isolation is in forgetting that when we're hurt or when something's difficult, that What's that what's happening is, wait, let me backtrack. When it feels difficult and when our friendships begin to be frayed or are challenged, is, w we, is when we forget that what's happened is that someone else has forgotten where their true refuge is and has taken a wrong turn. It's, it's not that we aren't all similar. It's not that we don't all want from each other honesty and vulnerability, but that over and over again we forget and move into the wrong turn, the wrong strategy of trying to get that. And that when we defend ourselves in that hurt, what happens is that we forget the person and we focus on just on the wrong strategy. So for example, let me see, I have a, um, I think I, 
Um, when I think, for example, um, the, uh, when I think of one of the places where I've lost a sense of friendship, it's been with, um, it's been with the government, with some of the people who are making decisions in our government. And often I find myself feeling estranged rather than in friendship with them. And when I feel estranged, it's because I forget about them as people and look just at the decisions they're making. And I forget, when I forget that they're people, when I forget that Bush is a person, when I find myself in despair, it's because I haven't remembered that Bush wants love as much as I do. And just as I forgot to give Mary or didn't remember that I really wanted to appreciate Mary by giving her a larger tip, and I became defensive and held this few extra dollars for myself, in that deluded understanding that I was taking care of myself, he's doing just the same thing. More resources, but exactly the same thing. <laughs> um, I am um, one of the reasons that I w one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about friendship is because uh, recently, well not it feels recently sometimes, but um, this e this year in February the relationship th my marriage ended, and um, you can probably guess and guess correctly that it's. Been an extraordinarily painful and growthful and excruciating and strengthening process. And in the transition from um, being in a couple to being single, I have I have really felt the incredible importance of friends of um, friends, and I don't mean just personal friends, but that friendship of what happens here in this room when each one of us makes the effort in our lives to come here because there is that love that's calling us, that wisdom that's calling us, that says, I want to make the effort and making that effort and showing up, and I feel it right here, brings about a certain feeling and a holding so that I know I'm not alone. And I just feel so appreciative of your efforts and of the efforts of other people in turning up, in making that, that time to listen to our hearts because it is from this space that support and friendships begin to develop. Actually, the Theravadins are talking more about something that the Mahayanas have been talking about 
from the beginning of their teachings, and that is that this process of coming together and becoming intimate with ourselves and each other, this process of opening our hearts and of, of seeing clearly more and more the strategies that bring us suffering and the strategies that actually bring us health and friendship is, is, is central to the practice and it's called the practice of the Bodhisattva. I read recently in a, um, Joseph Goldstein's new book and he said, I, I have been, as some of you know, very dedicated to um, insight to, and to um, the Eightfold Path and the cultivation of the factors that bring enlightenment. And it really transformed my practice to begin to take the practice of the Bodhisattva as my central practice. That practice of friendship and of service, the practice of giving. And I remember a story that Sopni Rinpoche told in the first retreat I went to. He talked about his father, who was a very, um, one of the uh, great teachers, Tulku Oregon Rinpoche, in, um, uh, of the Tibetan tradition. And he said that his father was dying, and his father was dying quite a painful death, and that his family had come round to him to take care of him. And every day in the last few weeks of his life, he insisted, even in great pain, that uh, Sokni and his brother um, help lift him up and put him in a chair by the window because outside there was a long line of people who wanted to come and, and interview with um, the Rinpoche. And of course the sons were, you know, had the door closed and were saying, no, no, you know, he's sick, you can't see him. And then um, his father would sit by the window and go like this. And, uh, and he would interview people every day. And uh, he, um, he saw the last person he interviewed and, um, and beckoned to Sokni to bring him to his bed and just an hour later died. And I feel so touched by that story of someone giving himself selflessly in friendship because he cared for other beings and wanting to um, touch, touch each person with empathy and with love. That, that movement to, um, to friendship, that movement to serve in some way or another is the same movement that the Eightfold Path invites us to which is the practice of letting go and renunciation. The practice of letting go of that defensiveness where we kind of hold on to ourselves. Um, at almost sometimes it feels to me as though we were, we were in some kind of video game where everyone was an enemy, do you know? And there's some very deep way where we still are invested in protecting ourselves. Practice of friendship is a practice not only of, of um, great joy, but actually of
30 miles away a tough working class man who never pretended to be soft-spoken or self-effacing found a way to cope with disappointment when his son was born with Down syndrome. To make ends meet, he worked long hours as an automobile mechanic, then pumped gas at night. When his son was first born, a boy at last, after five girls, he was not sad, anxious, or self-pitying, only angry. His wife understood her husband well. He's always been a man's man. He has his buddies and they drink a lot of beer on Fridays. Otherwise, he's sober and very hard-working, two jobs and never more than six hours sleep. He's been a good husband and a good father. He loves those girls, but I'd be lying if I told you he didn't want a son. Oh, he was crazy for a boy. And when we decided to give it one last chance, and he kept telling me he knew we'd have a sixth girl, he knew it. I knew something myself, how much he wanted a boy. Then I delivered, and we were all in ecstasy because it was a boy. Then came the news there was something wrong, that the boy Ben wasn't so good, that he wasn't passing the tests these doctors have when they examine babies. The rest, it's a nightmare. I don't know how to tell it, all we went through, but especially him. Soon after Ben was declared retarded, modestly so the doctor said, the parents had to decide whether they could take care of the boy themselves or would they have to entrust him to others. They had no real money, so others meant a public institution. The father's dreams of raising a son had to be surrendered. The mother abandoned thoughts of a career related to the, related the gradual changes in her husband the slow but final steep decline in his spirits, in his entire way of being. He used to be full of energy and now he's lost a lot of it. He used to jump out of bed and he'd be ready for the day even when it was five in the morning and dark in the coldest of winter. These days he's sleeping hard, the alarm goes off and he wants to go back to sleep. Let's see. <clears throat> He's heartbroken, we both are, only I seem to be taking it much better. I say a dozen times to myself, God's will. If the good Lord wanted to send a retarded child here and a boy, then that's his decision. For me, the church is a big help. You know something, when he was at his lowest, he even stopped going to church. I said, it's bad enough our troubles and now you're going to send yourself to hell. He looked at me and you know what he said? He said, I'm already in hell. I wanted, I was ready to throw a glass at the wall when I heard that. I thought to myself, I'm fed up with all this feeling sorry for yourself that's coming out of his mouth. I just grabbed my raincoat and I left the house. I slammed that door so hard I was afraid the roof would cave in. I was in the car and I was ready to go and then I said to myself, hey, stop a minute. What's more important, to go to church and sit there and fume and ask Jesus to feel sorry for me and condemn my husband or to go back inside and sit with him? So she chose to go home 
and take the chance that her husband would resolve his growing desperation. So <coughs> she suggests that her husband go and speak to the doctor. A week later, he and the pediatrician had a long talk. The doctor took the lead, told his patient's father that he needed to become part of Ben's life and that one way to do so was to work with older retarded children. I was slow myself. I was disabled, he would recall a year later. He was also anxious, frightened, ready to give up and flee or break down and cry. But he also wanted some way out of the trap he had built for himself. He intuitively knew that his tears were a kind of grief, evidence of a mind in mourning. I've been crying for all the hopes and dreams I once had. They're not going to happen. It's only gradually occurring to me that the only way out of this corner I'm in, like I keep saying it's a trap and I've made it myself, the only way out is for me to find some other place to go, some new hope for myself. By then he had already begun to build up some hopes, not for himself, or least of all for his son, <coughs> but for the three or four youngsters he was learning to engage with, challenge to activities, help restrain and excite to action. Pretty soon he and his boys were quite a team in sports and games and cleanup activities, in doing routines and assisting the staff with other children. Pretty soon, he began to figure out ways to connect with his own son, to show the boy and his mother and sisters that there was a lot this busy mechanic could do to fix the way a home was running. He didn't lose his wistfulness about what might have been. Rather, he let those thoughts ignite him in a fierce willingness, willfulness he had always possessed as a worker. Once the sight of boys playing in a little league game had been unbearable, the time would come when he would organize his own son's little league team. When a neighbor once called the team special, he flinched. I didn't like the way he used that word. I felt myself getting weak. I was a little teary for a second, and my knees felt as though someone just touched me and I'd fall over. But in another second, I was up for anything, and I said, you bet we're special. I meant it. Me and the kids, we were doing great, and we'd show him. We'd be thrilled to show him. It was then I knew I'd crossed some big street, and I was walking on the other side, and my head was up, not down, and it was working with those kids that did it. most living moment comes when those who love each other meet each other's eyes and in what flows between them. Then, to see your face in a crowd of others or alone on a frightened street, I weep for that. Our tears improve the earth. The time you scolded me, your gratitude, your laughing, always your qualities increase the soul. Seeing you is a wine that does not muddle or numb. 
we sit inside the cypress shadow where amazement and clear thought twine their slow growth into us. So let's take a moment and sit together. <laughs> 